G'day, Barry. Uh, thanks for coming again. Um, uh, Barry has been with us a number of times in the past. He drops in occasionally. Not sure why you'd want to come down this way since you live in Sydney. Do you want to fill us in a little bit about what drags you down to Victor Harbour? Well, you invited me this time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you and Miriam and, and the children are a very big draw cut. Yeah. So Barry is Miriam's father, if you hadn't picked that up. Um, so, um, so he gets the joy of coming down to Victor Harbour every now and again. <coughs> so, and we love having you with us. Um, you were for many years a lecturer at Moore Theological College in Sydney and still do some lecturing there. Um, Not much, but some, yeah. And your focus at the moment is more on writing. Yeah. Um, um, you're going to preach to us in a, in a moment from a wonderful passage in the book of Isaiah. Um, uh, I, I haven't this is totally unprepared, but I wondered whether um, you'd be able to share with us just a little bit about particularly what excites you about the Old Testament as someone who's kind of immersed your life in understanding right. the Old Testament. Was, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it was Jesus' Bible. So that's a good enough reason to be excited about it. And, um, you know, it it's so much enriches your understanding of Jesus, um, his person and his, his work, what he came to do. And I won't say it's a lot of fun because a lot of parts of it are quite difficult, but I found it so enriching to my life. And it's not all difficult. Um, a lot of it's uh, very understandable and there's some wonderful passages in it that have been a great, so significant in my own life and one of those we're going to look at today. Right. Well, thank you. Um, Barry will be around afterwards, so make sure you get a chance to talk to him and ask him any questions or encourage him, ask him about the book he's writing at the moment. Um, but <coughs> we're... Um, uh, yeah, if you want to take a seat, yep. and I'll pray for us, and then Steve's going to come and read from Isaiah 35 before we hear. Yeah. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your word. Uh, we thank you that we have in our hands the Bible that Jesus read, um, the Bible, the Old Testament that all points to him uh, and the New Testament that all witnesses to him. We thank you for the privilege of that and we thank you that through your holy scriptures you reveal to us your plans and purposes. Help us to trust you and to hear your voice this morning um, in, this, in your word. And we pray that for your glory and by your spirit and through the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad... The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, 
with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. <clears throat> well, thank you very much for your welcome. I've spoken to some of you before church, and I hope I'll meet more of you afterwards, some of you for a second or third time now. But I always love coming here, and it's always a privilege to be able to speak to you like this from God's Word. Um, last time I, I did speak here, I was not well. I was not in good health. I'm glad to say I'm much better now, praise God. Now, I want to look with you this morning at that passage that Steve has just read to us from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, uh, 35. But let's pray, shall we? And it's much more important that we hear God's voice than that you hear my voice. And so let's open our hearts to God in prayer. Let's do that. Oh God, we thank you so much that through Jesus we've come to know you as our Heavenly Father. And we come to you now, Father, grateful for your word and grateful for your spirit whom you placed within us to give us understanding of your word. Father, you know all the things that are pressing on our minds now, uh, things that we've done, things that are coming up for us, things that make us anxious. Oh God, please quiet in our hearts, please drive those distractions away now so that we may hear nothing but your voice. And as we do, Lord, may we know that you love us and may we receive your word gladly. Please have your way with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, you've heard the passage read. I don't know if you noticed, but it's actually a very happy passage, a very sunny passage. And that's good because uh, a lot of passages in the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, are not like that. Um, some of them are quite dark. Um, there's quite a bit about <coughs> judgment to come. 
It's not about the waywardness of God's people and the consequences of that in their lives and as a nation. So the Old Testament in parts and in quite large parts can be fairly depressing reading. And some people feel very negative about the Old Testament for that reason. But this passage is not like that at all. In fact, it's completely unlike that. Um, It begins with gladness. It ends with singing. And joy kind of bubbles up all the way through it in almost every verse. might say it's kind of effervescent with positivity. That's that's the kind of passage it is. And that's particularly surprising because Isaiah, who wrote these words, lived in very difficult times. And his personal circumstances were very difficult and they became more difficult as his life went on. In Isaiah's time in the 8th century BC, the Middle East was in turmoil and you say to me, well, what's new? It seems always to be in turmoil. It certainly was in Isaiah's day. Um, Assyria, which is really where northern Iraq is now, was a rising imperial power and it was pushing out its borders and enlarging its territory and clearly had ambitions to rule the entire region, the entire Middle East. And all the small nations in its path were threatened with invasion and conquest. And Judah itself, which was the kingdom that Isaiah belonged to, was like a cork, really, bobbing about on a very rough sea with no direction and no stability. And with, humanly speaking, with very little chance of surviving. And uh, actually, within Isaiah's own time, Jerusalem, the city where he lived, was put under siege. A siege was a terrible thing in the ancient world. People starved in sieges and incredible suffering happened in sieges. And Isaiah experienced Jerusalem being placed under siege. And although it survived just, Isaiah could see that eventually it would fall and its people will be taken away as prisoners of war, as exiles to another land. And Isaiah tried to warn them that only God could save them and that unless they stopped living as they were and turned back to him, there really was no hope for them. That doesn't make you popular, you know, (laughs) to preach that kind of message. But that's what he was called to preach And that seemed unrealistic to most people. They were looking for political solutions, they were looking for military solutions, they were looking for every other kind of solution but faith in God. And so Isaiah was sometimes listened to. More often he was ignored. And eventually, for his faithfulness to his task, Isaiah was martyred 
he was put to death for his faith. You see, he would not stop his preaching. And the only way to shut him up was to kill him. And they did eventually kill him, and they did it in a most cruel way. Early uh, Jewish tradition, almost certainly right, um, has it that Isaiah was sawn in two in the reign of Manasseh. Don't think about it too much. I say it's almost certainly right because in the list of the heroes of Israel's faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 37 it says some were sawn in two which is almost certainly an allusion to the martyrdom of Isaiah. So that's, that's how his life in this world ended. So it was not an easy time to be a prophet. Not at all easy. It was a great deal to make Isaiah anxious. So how could someone in circumstances like that speak as he does in this chapter? What was the secret of his joy? That's the issue that I want to explore with you for a few moments now. Well, I think there are three reasons that I see in this passage. And they're all about God and things that Isaiah believed about God. First of all, he believed that God was the Lord of his place. The Lord of his place. And by his place, I mean the place where he lived. His geographical place, if you like. See, in verses 1 and 2, he says this. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And what he's talking about here is the coming of spring in the land of Israel. Uh, much of Israel was then, and much of it still is today, quite dry and rocky, especially in the south. And Isaiah lived in the south. But most of the names here, place names, are from the northern part of Israel. And in the far north there is a wonderful mountain called Mount Hermon. And it's at the southern end of the Lebanon ranges, near the border today of Lebanon, Syria and Israel, the part that's called the Golan Heights. You may have, you may have heard of that. But Mount, Le Mount uh, Hermon is snow-covered all the year round. I've seen it. You can see it from Galilee. I've been there and I've seen Mount Hermon um, in the distance. But in the spring, much of that snow melts and its waters flow southward, south into uh, the Sea of Galilee, um, into the Jordan River, um, across the alluvial plains of the Jezreel Valley towards Mount Carmel 
out onto the plain of Sharon on the Mediterranean coast. And as it did that in Isaiah's day, as it still does today, the land would turn green and burst into bloom. And the white and purple and red crocus flowers would appear. And in a good year, even the dry southern desert would get some of the early and latter rains in October and May, and it would turn green as well. And Isaiah calls that the glory of the Lord, the splendour of our God. And Isaiah, when he saw that happening, he saw the land rejoicing. He rejoiced with it. That's the first secret of Isaiah's joy. You see, winter comes, but so does spring. And when God brings renewal to the parched land, he fills it again with life and colour and fruitfulness. And that was a source of joy for Isaiah, you see. Now, I live in a beautiful place. You live in a beautiful place. I'm not trying to be one up on you here. But I live in Bundina on the southern outskirts of Sydney in the Royal National Park. And it is, it is a, a beautiful place. And I love living there because all around me I see the glory of God who made the world that I live in, live in and put me where I am in it for this time. That's his place for me now. One day I know I'll have to leave it and go somewhere else. But that'll be okay because every place is God's place. That's good news, isn't it? Every place is God's place. And wherever he puts me, I'll see the glory of God there too. Now I went out jogging this morning as I, as I normally do for a while and I saw the green hills and I saw the, um, the plovers and the fairy wrens uh, skittering about on the grass and calling to one another. And when I saw that, what I was seeing was the glory of God, the splendour of the Lord. That's what I was seeing. It made me feel very happy. It's very, very important to feel happy at least sometime every day it's very good for your mental and spiritual health and if you lose the capacity to do that you're going to get very very your life's become very gray and um, it's not good for you now Isaiah had the capacity to do that he talks about the place where he lived and he knew that God was the Lord of that place and there was something beautiful and glorious to be seen there that spoke to him of God and God's majesty. That's the first secret of his joy. The second thing, he knew that God was the Lord of his circumstances. Now just listen to verse 3 and following. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. That is, with retribution on the enemies. 
Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongues shout for joy. Here the focus shifts from Isaiah himself to those he had in mind as he wrote this passage, his audience, if you like. Because he knew the time would come when the people of Jerusalem would have to, they would have to move to another place. And not because they wanted to, but because of the changing fortunes of war, like many refugees are having to do today, like people from Syria and Yemen. And the people of Judah would become refugees. They would have to move to another place, a place strange to them. It will be beautiful also in its own way, but it would not be home and it would not be where they wanted to be. And their circumstances would be difficult even more than at present and even more than Isaiah's own in his own day. But he knew that was coming. And so he talks here of feeble hands and knees that give way. Not because people are physically sick, but because they're afraid. Afraid of what would happen to them and what their future would be. That's what fear does to people. It robs you of your strength. It makes you weak in body and mind. And he knew the people he had in mind were going to feel that way. And what does he say to them? He says, be strong, do not fear. Because just as there is renewal in nature, because God is the creator, so there can be renewal and change in history because God is also the redeemer or the rescuer. And that means there is hope. You can't live without hope. If you have no hope, you'll die. But there's reason for hope. And Isaiah knew that God was Lord of his circumstances. Now that was easy to say perhaps. Uh, do not fear and so on. Easy perhaps to say. But did Isaiah have any reason to believe it? And would these people in a situation like that have reason to believe that God was Lord of their circumstances? And yes, they would. And yes, Isaiah did, because of their common history. How did Israel's history begin? It began as a nation with deliverance, with rescue from slavery in Egypt. And there'd been many times since then that God had come to their rescue and saved them. And Isaiah had seen that happen in his own day. If you want to read about a remarkable rescue, read chapters 36 and 37 of this book of Isaiah. And that happened in Isaiah's own day. It was the deliverance of Jerusalem from what looked like certain destruction in the days of Hezekiah. Isaiah experienced that. He'd seen God rescuing his people and he knew that he could do it again. He believed that he would. And he said, when that happens, then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. 
So even the fut- though the future was bleak, and it certainly was bleak in Isaiah's day, he knew there was joy on ahead, and that joy was something that Isaiah could already feel in his bones. You know, having hope is a wonderful thing. That's what it does to you. It makes you strong. And so, um, and because he knew God was the Lord of his circumstances, and God was the Lord of their circumstances, he could write like this. That was the second reason for his joy. He knew that God was Lord of his circumstances. And then the third reason was this. He knew that God was the Lord of his destiny. Redemption or rescue is the end of something. Praise God. But it's also the beginning of something. It's the beginning of something that has direction and purpose and leads somewhere. So in the last part of this chapter, Isaiah speaks about a highway, beginning in verse 8. And a highway will be there. And it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. Those whom the Lord has rescued will return, and they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This highway that Isaiah speaks about is a road that leads home. In the case of these people, it was a road to Zion, to Jerusalem, the place that they had been driven out of. It was where they longed to be. They longed to be there because when they were there, they would have their freedom and their dignity back again. And that's been the longing of the Jewish people who most of their history have been in exile back to Jerusalem. And, you know, some of them experienced that in the 20th century in what we call the secular form of that hope is Zionism. Zionism. And they've gone about achieving it sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad ways, sometimes militarily and in other ways but it's an expression of their hope to be home in Zion, Jerusalem, which they believe is, is their home, at least on earth. For us, the high and holy way that leads home is the road we set out on when we heard the gospel and set out to follow Jesus. This journey home is a pilgrimage not to an earthly city, but to a heavenly one. Jesus opened that way for us by the cross and the empty tomb. He walked that way himself through death to resurrection and ascension and finally to his father and his home. And Jesus promised that all who followed him would one day be there too with him. To his grieving disciples when he was about to leave them, he said, I go to prepare a place for you 
and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So you see, God was the Lord of Isaiah's destiny, but he's also the Lord of our destiny, if we're followers of the same God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus. The Christian life is a journey home. Now, I don't know if you've all read Pilgrim's Progress. I sure hope you have. And if you, if you did, weren't introduced to it as a child, you should demand an apology from your parents and teachers because it's absolutely essential reading. Absolutely, there are children's versions of it and so on. So you can start young, Pilgrim's Progress. Let me urge you to read it. If you haven't read it, repent and read it now, okay? It's, it's very important. Now, there are two parts to Pilgrim's Progress. The first part is about pilgrims or Christians' journey home. And the second part, excuse me, is about his wife, Christiana, and her journey to the same place. She goes later, and some of the children and friends go with her. And on the way, they meet, um, they meet people along the way. One of them is called Valiant for Truth. Valiant for Truth. Now, uh, Mr. Valiant, you see, is with them when eventually they come in sight of the celestial city. They're going from the city of destruction to the celestial city. That's the story of the Christian life. And they, they see it in the distance, but between them and it there is a river in flood. And they're afraid of the river because they're afraid of drowning in it, obviously, but they know they must cross it to get home to the city. And so they wait on the edge of the river, they're quite fearful and anxious. And every now and then a message, a message is sent to them that someone's name is called and it's time for that person to go over and one by one they cross over and eventually Valiant's, Valiant for Truth, his name is called and so he says goodbye to his friends and he steps into the water and as he begins to cross the water gets deeper and deeper and it's up to his knees, up to his stomach, it's up to his neck eventually and it's still rising and as it continues to rise, the friends on the bank hear Valiant for Truth cry out, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And then they saw him no more. It's the last words they heard him say. But Bunyan says, so beautifully, so simply, and so he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. <laughs> what a magnificent line that is. And so he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. Now, you know, I mentioned I wasn't well when I spoke here last. I had cancer. I probably still do have it, though I'm in remission, praise God. But while I, when I was going through that and in the midst of that crisis, um, one of my friends died of the very same cancer that I had. And his name was Malcolm. He, he belonged to a Bible study that meets in my home, a men's Bible study. And 
I was asked if I would pray at Malcolm's funeral, which was quite confronting for me to do that. But as I prepared to do that, it made me think a lot about Malcolm. I don't know whether Malcolm thought that he was valiant for truth. I don't know whether he would be comfortable with anybody saying that about him or calling him that. My guess is that Malcolm would not want that. I think he'd be embarrassed because he was a very modest man, a very unassuming man. But he was well known to homeless people in Surrey Hills in inner Sydney because Malcolm spent most of his life serving homeless people in that area. And uh, they would have missed him when he went. They would have missed him very much. But a lot, most other people would have hardly noted his passing at all. But you see, Malcolm, I knew, was a pilgrim on his journey home. And he, he knew he was. Um, he knew which highway he was on, if I can put it that way. And he knew what his destiny was. And so did, and so I believe those words were right for Malcolm. So he passed over and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. He got home, you see. Well, he knew his destiny. He knew where he was going. So did Isaiah. So can you. So can I. Jesus has made that possible for us. We can live with that confidence, that hope and that joy. And we can die with it. It's a great way to go when your time comes. And let me just say to you this, we don't have to be ashamed of our tears on the way or our struggles because they're part of the journey too. And when we get home, God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's how the Bible ends in the book of Revelation. Isaiah lived and died like that and he went to his martyrdom believing God was the Lord of his destiny and that's the third reason for his joy. So what's the take home message? I hope we'll pray for one another this week. I'd be really glad if you prayed for me and I pray for this church a lot actually. Um, So what should we pray for one another this week. You know, the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's in the book of Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not something you can work up. It's a gift. So we need to pray for it. Lord, give me that joy. So let us pray for one another this week that God would cause his joy to spring up in us again and make us strong as we journey home. Because God is the Lord of our place. He's the Lord of our circumstances. And he's the Lord of our destiny. Amen.